So I will read chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. That will be our passage for this morning. So Paul writes here, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy." But if the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or a sister is not under, obli- under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So again, just a brief recap from last week. We looked at verses 1 through, through 9 of 1 Corinthians 7. And this is the second main part of Paul's letter to the Corinthian church here in which he deals with questions that the church raised. And given the first half of the letter and all the practical issues, the behavioral issues that were infecting that church in Corinth, uh, it's good to see the Corinthians then ask questions to the apostles. As we stated last week and kind of the theme that I want to cover the second half of the, the letter is that right thinking leads to right practice. If you get your theology right, it will lead to right practice, generally speaking. Uh, wrong, faulty thinking leads to wrong or faulty practice. In other words, one cannot do the right thing if one doesn't know what the right thing is to do. Right? If you don't know what the right thing is, you can't do the right thing. You might stumble into it, but you don't have any knowledge of intentionally being able to do the right thing. Now, 1 Corinthians 7 that we're looking at here, the entire chapter really is all about marriage. It's all about marriage. And in verse 1, we see that slogan or saying that was part of the Corinthian um, idea where they say in verse 1, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That was sort of the Corinthians philosophy there. The Corinthians were probably operating under the influence of Greco-Roman philosophical thought, as we've mentioned in the past, which valued, in this case, asceticism. So this idea of uh, avoiding any kind of sexual contact at all with anybody. Uh, You had the two extremes, right? You had the hedonists, they was like have sex with everything, doesn't matter. The body doesn't matter. And then the other extreme would be the, the Stoics or the, you know, the, the, those who would avoid or eschew any kind of sexual contact whatsoever. So in verses 2 through 7, Paul addresses the issue of how husbands and wives are to act within the marriage context. And far from not touching your spouse, you are encouraged to have sexual relations with your spouse. The idea there of a man not touching a woman is a euphemism. In other words, they were thinking it is good for a man not to have sexual relations for a woman. Paul says, no, 
It is good for a man to have sexual relations with his wife within the bonds of the marriage union. And he says, do that because of sexual immorality. It's within the bond of marriage, sex is good, it is, it is approved, it is a wonderful, blessed thing. Outside of it is, that's where the sin lies. That's where you want to avoid. Now in verses 8-9, through nine, Paul then addresses the unmarried. Those who are widowed, those who are still yet uh, bachelors or bachelorettes. And he says it is good for them to remain as they are. In other words, you know, to, to be like Paul was. Paul was more than likely a widower, and he remained single, and it allowed him to minister uh, in a very focused and, and uh, unhindered way. He didn't have any other obligations other than the call to minister that, that was given to him by Christ. So he says to the unmarried, uh, the widows, um, it is good to stay and in, in, to remain even as I am. But he says, if you cannot exercise self-control, then get married because that's the God-ordained vehicle in order, you know, through which you can um, exercise uh, sexual relations. Then he goes on. The topic here, of course, of marriage continues in verses 10 through 16 where Paul now is talking about the issue of divorce. And I want to just take a few moments to talk about a little bit about divorce here. Um, since this passage here, verses 10 through 16, along with Jesus' teaching that you see in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19, this, these three passages provide the main New Testament teaching on the topic of divorce. So we're going to discuss this a little bit. Uh, because last week during the sermon in Hosea 3, I mentioned the, the failure rates of marriage, right? The failure rates of marriage. First marriages fail at about a 50% rate. Then second marriages fail at about a 60% rate. And then third marriages fail at an over 70% rate. So much of this is the result, of course, of no-fault divorces, which became popular in the late 60s, early 70s, and then became sort of the law of the land since then. Just this idea you can divorce for any reason whatsoever. Divorce essentially then makes marriage a joke in our society, right? Instead of saying, till death do us part, you're saying, till death or divorce do us part, right? You're saying, till you tick me off or until I lose that loving feeling do us part, Needless to say, God and the Bible take a very negative view on divorce. God in Malachi says, I hate divorce. And then consider how the institution of marriage was established at the creation. The whole point of the one flesh union is to take two people, both of whom are created in the image of God, and to unite them in one flesh union in which they now better reflect the nature and image of God. Sorry, strike the nature. They reflect the image of God more perfectly in that union. In a very real sense, ever since God took a rib from Adam's side to form the woman, man and woman alone are incomplete. It is when they are together that they are complete and vice versa. A man is incomplete without a woman and a woman is incomplete without a man. And then given the language that the Old Testament uses in Genesis 2, the language of leaving and cleaving, that word in the Hebrew to cleave is, is sort of like to stick, to cling to. 
It's what Ruth did, right? When Naomi tells Ruth, go back to your home, Naomi is said to cling to, to or Ruth is said to cling to Naomi. It's almost like she's holding on to her and says, don't tell me to leave you. That's the idea of the cleaving together. Divorce does literal and metaphorical damage to this institution. Now, clearly, divorce was not an intended part of the creation, but comes as a result of the fall, right? It is because of the fall and because of our inability to live in harmony with one another, right? You know, when you take a fallen sinner and unite him to another fallen sinner, what do you have? You have two fallen sinners, right? It's not like double negative, right? Where they kind of make a positive. No. You take one fallen sinner, unite them and cleave them to another fallen sinner, you've got two fallen sinners. And what, is, you know, what does God tell you know, Adam and Eve after they fall and the curse? He says, the husband wants to lord it over the woman, and the woman wants to usurp the husband's role. So you've got... At the beginning, at the fall, you've got the, the, the battle of the sexes right there because of the fall. Now in the Mosaic Law in Deuteronomy 24, verse 1, um, you see a, a stipulation for divorce. And it was told there that a man was permitted to divorce his wife, but the, devo- the bar, I should say, for divorce was set fairly high. It was because of uncleanness. It was because of some... Some, and the word there for uncleanness is intended to talk about sexual immorality, which is you know, adultery. So if, if, there, if the man finds some uncleanness in his wife, he is permitted, not commanded to, permitted to divorce. Divorce is never commanded. Problem was, later Jewish scholars and rabbis started to define what uncleanness meant. And it didn't just mean sex, adultery. There was one very liberal school, I believe the rabbi's name was Hillel, and all the men loved this one because a man was allowed to divorce his wife if she burnt his, ruined his meal, if she no longer looked appealing to him in any way, shape, or form. So a man was, you know, had a very broad range of how you can divorce, which is why in Matthew 5.32, when Jesus is on the Sermon on the Mount. He's kind of going through the law. He comes up to the idea of divorce. And he interprets that law in Deuteronomy 24.1. says, Whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. So Jesus, God incarnate, the one who gave the law back in the Old Testament, is now giving his divinely inspired interpretation of that law in Deuteronomy 24.1. He says, the only, way, the only permissible reason for divorce is sexual immorality. Anything else is unpermitted because what you do then is you cause adultery to, to flourish in that case. And then later on in Matthew 19, verses 1-10, through 10, Jesus again further teaches on divorce by emphasizing the intended permanence of marriage. The idea of permanence, where he says that you know, a, a, uh, what God has joined together, let no man tear asunder. And he says that divorce was permitted because the Jews came up to him. They said, is it true, Rabbi, 
that a man can divorce his reason, his wife for whatever reason. And Jesus is like, no, that is not true. And he says, divorce was permitted because of the hardness of your hearts. Because of the hardness of your hearts. In other words, because you were unable to forgive, unable to look past the fallen nature of your spouse, God permits divorce in order to allow so that you don't spread adultery throughout the land. Again, the Jews had taken a somewhat ambiguous phrasing of Deuteronomy 24.1 and had inserted all kinds of reasons for allowing divorce, which is why they say, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And Jesus says, no. Divorce should be an absolute last resort for married people, especially for Christians. But we have so expanded the idea of divorce and consequently so cheapened marriage that Christians start to look just like the world. And even our marriage rates start to look just like the world. I should say divorce rates look just like the world. So as we look at our passage now this morning, verses 10 through 16, Paul is going to address the issue of marriage and divorce within the Corinthian context, as specific, you know, specific to what's going on here in Corinth. And Paul is going to address two groups of people in this passage here from verses 10 through 16. In verses 10 through 11, he's going to talk about divorce in the context of two believing spouses. And then in verses 12 through 16, he's going to look at divorce in the context of a believing spouse married to an unbelieving spouse. Now, in both cases, Paul is going to give an apostolic command to not divorce. But there are exceptions to these rules. So the rule is, do not divorce. And there are going to be some exceptions he's going to allow for, as we will see as we go on. But given, even given the exceptions, it is seen as better to reconcile than to divorce. That's the, that's the goal, right? God loves to restore and redeem these fallen relationships, not see them torn asunder for whatever reason. So at the end of this lesson, I hope we get that. But also, one thing I want to look at, because it's not addressed in this passage, but it often comes as a result of this passage, is how do we um, look at the issue of abuse within marriages? And what, you know, what does the Bible have to say about that as far as, as it relates to divorce? So we'll save that for the end. Um, and that, that's why I didn't want to... <laughs> kind of look at this passage because the issue of abuse is very, very difficult. And I don't pretend to have all the answers, but we'll try to get some principles, I hope. So looking at our first point here, divorce within a believing context in verses 10 through 11. So again, continuing his discussion from verse 1 of chapter 7, Paul continues now in verses 10 and 11 where he says here, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, A wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. And a husband is not to divorce his wife. And again, we have to remember that verse 1, where they say it is good for a man not to touch a woman, or it is good for a man not to have sexual relations for a woman, that sort of governs what we see in chapter 7. It is the, the... It is... Everything in chapter 7 is sort of like an extended answer to that, to that question. Because the Corinthians, again, thought it is good for a man not to touch a woman. 
And Paul disagrees, and in verses 2-7, through he argues that married couples ought to engage in regular sexual activity. Again, marriage is the safe place for sex. All other arenas lead to immorality. And now here in verse 10, Paul is speaking specifically to married couples. He addresses the unmarried in verses 8 and 9, and now turns to married couples in verses 10 and 11. And then we get this odd turn of phrase that we see in, chapter, in verse 10 and also in verse 12, where Paul says in verse 10, I command, yet not I, but the Lord. And then in verse 12 where he says, I, not the Lord, say. So many people have made so much of this, and I want to just kind of cut through all of the the garbage and just kind of get to the heart of what's going on here and provide a very simple solution to this. The content that you see in verses 10 through 11, when Paul says, I command yet not I but the Lord, he is just sort of repeating something Jesus had taught during his earthly ministry. This is the Lord's teaching in verses 10 and 11. That's why he says, yet not I but the Lord. There should really be no mystery here. The content in verses 12 through 16 is something Jesus didn't directly address in his earthly ministry. So when Paul says, I, not the Lord, say, we're not to treat this any less than the Holy Spirit-inspired revelation from the pen of the Apostle Paul. It's not his opinion, nor should it carry any less weight than the words of Jesus. It's just that Jesus never addressed this topic during his earthly ministry. Paul is addressing it here. That's why he says, I, not the Lord, say. Now again, what Paul says in verse 10 is no different than what Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 5 or Matthew chapter 19. A married couple ought not divorce. A wife is not to depart. That word there in the Greek means to separate, to divide from her husband. And a husband is not to divorce. And that word there means to send away his wife. Now, there's two different words there in the Greek, and we don't make too many, let's not make too much about the fact that there are two different words. They're synonymous in this context. And also, the idea of separation, we should try to avoid importing sort of our modern day sensibilities of what, you know, like legal separation versus divorce. There was no difference in the mind of the Corinthians or of the mind of the Jews. They both meant the same thing, to divorce. In fact, the process in the ancient world was a lot less formal than it is today. But what Paul here is upholding is the biblical ideal of the sanctity of marriage. And that what God, again, has joined together, no man should tear asunder. And that's why Paul says here in verse uh, 11, even if she does depart, if the wife does leave her husband, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled. In other words, the ideal, right? The ideal that we should try to uphold is to not divorce, to try to restore the relationship, not destroy it. Don't, Don't immediately go to the nuclear option in a marriage when it falls apart. Try to restore it. Try to reconcile. Again, God loves to redeem broken relationships, right? If God treated us like we treat marriage in our society, we would be doomed, right? Oh, you sin. Away with you. You know, we'd all be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We'd all be like Nadab and Abihu. The first time we sin, we'd be snuffed out. No, we need to try to restore these broken relationships. Yet our, our, our flesh says to flee. 
right? It's not working away. Okay, I'm going to go find the next best thing. Grass is greener on the other side, right? That's our flesh talking. Again, this is tough because in our culture, the going philosophy is to cut, bait, and run if things aren't going well. We've sort of fallen into the trap of the romantic comedies, right? And they lived what? Happily ever after, right? See, all these romantic movies, they always end with a couple getting together. They never tell you what happens 10 years down the road after they've been married for 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. So when we don't get the happily ever after, when the romance fades, then it's time to bail and find happiness again. What's another one of the going ideas, right? Life is too short to endure a blah, bland marriage. You've got to try to find the happiness. Now, it should be, I shouldn't have to say this, but this should not be the mentality of the Christian, right? Christ forbids it. Paul forbids it. A husband is not to divorce his wife. A wife is not to depart from her husband. Now, the question, of course, why is Paul giving this command? Again, given the context of the chapter, particularly chapter 7, verse 1, this seems sort of a more drastic way to avoid sexual relations, right? If, if the Corinthian mentality is it's good for a man not to touch a woman, then the best situation would be if you're married, just separate. Then you cannot, then there's no temptation to, to you know, because if I'm married, well, I have this obligation to fulfill the, the duties of a husband or a wife. So if we just divorce, then I don't have to do that. Then I can kind of live this ascetic ideal. So this ascetic movement, this idea of remaining uh, physically chaste in Corinth was influencing married couples to avoid sex and in more drastic measure to actually divorce one another. That's why Paul says, don't do that. Don't do that. He says a very emphatic, no. And now let's look at verses 12 through 16 as we see now uh, divorce within an unbelieving context here. So in verse 12, Paul says, to the rest. To the rest, in verses 12 and 13. But to the rest I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. Now from the context, it's clear that Paul here is talking about a mixed marriage, right? Not a racially mixed marriage. That's when we think of mixed marriage, that's what we think of, right? Oh, a black man married a white woman, or you, know, you married an Asian dude, or whatever. No, that's not mixed. He's talking here religiously mixed, spiritually mixed, right? Believer with unbeliever, Christian with someone that's not a Christian, whether that's an unbeliever or from another uh, faith system. Now, considering what Paul will say later in verse 39, you can look there if you want, where it says, a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So what Paul, when, you know, given what Paul says later in that chapter, what we see here in verses 12 through 16 is not a believer who has married an unbeliever. What you probably see here more than likely is a 
a marriage in which one of the spouses comes to faith and the other one doesn't. So they were probably married. They were probably pagans when they were married, unbelievers when they were married. Yet, through the proclamation of the gospel, through being in the church in Corinth, one of the, one of the spouses, one of the partners in that marriage comes to faith and the other one doesn't. So now you've got this situation of tension within the marriage. So yeah, so Paul is addressing here a, a, a situation in which you have two married people and one of them comes to faith and the other does not. Now, if you've never been in a situation like that, then count yourself blessed. That is a very difficult situation to, to uh, live through. I mean, marriage is difficult enough already, right? What do we say marriage is? It's the, it's the union of one fallen person with another fallen person. It is a fallen man united to a fallen woman, and together they make a fallen couple, right? So it's already hard enough to, to, to navigate the marriage waters when you're talking about two believers. Now you, you try to navigate the, those same marriage waters when you're not on the same page. It's why Paul forbids, in verse 39, as we saw, a Christian from marrying a non-Christian. Don't put yourself through that. <laughs> don't, try, don't think you can go, oh, I can save him, or I can redeem her. No, you can't. I mean, the Lord may work through that, but you're going to put yourself in a very difficult situation. It's a world of headache you don't need. But in the first century, when Christianity was growing in the Roman Empire, this phenomenon was quite common, where you have unbelieving couples, and then one comes to faith and the other does not. Very common in the first century context when the church is growing rapidly as we see through the book of Acts. And the Corinthians probably thought, well, okay, if sexual relations between two married people who are believers is okay, surely if you have a believer united to an unbeliever, that has got to be defiling. That has got to be unholy, right? Surely a Christian in a one flesh union with an unbeliever cannot be kosher. Yet Paul here says, if the unbelieving spouse agrees to stay, if when you, when you become a Christian, that unbelieving spouse doesn't run away and flee from you because you become this weird person <laughs> that has come to faith and you're different and you think differently and you act differently and, 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 and they don't want to run away scared from that, then Paul says you are not to divorce the unbelieving spouse. If they want to stay in that relationship, you are not to divorce the unbelieving spouse. And again, that was probably something that was going on in the Corinthian context. One person comes to faith, the other does not. They says, this cannot be good. I want to divorce. I want to separate. But the unbelieving spouse is like, I, I'm, I don't want to separate. I'm willing to stay in this marriage. Paul says, if that's the case, then do not divorce. And the reason Paul gives is in verse 14, where he says, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. That's an amazing verse. That is an amazing verse. Now let's cut to the quick. Okay? Paul is not using the word sanctified in a salvific sense. He's not saying that you can... Be married to a believer, and therefore you are sanctified, you're a Christian. 
Otherwise, now you have two ways to, to salvation, right? Faith in Jesus Christ or just get married to a believer. <laughs> All right, so that's not what Paul's saying by when he means sanctified. He's using sanctified in the other sense of the word, right? So sanctified or holy means to be, to be pure, but it also means to be set apart, to be uh, removed from the realm of the mundane, to be re- removed from the realm of the secular. You are now sort of in the realm of the sacred. Right? When God said that the, you know, to Moses on the mount, take your sandals from off your feet for the ground you are standing on is holy ground, the ground itself was not holy. The ground was holy. Why? Because God was there. That's why the ground was holy. When the priest is in his, all of his garb and he has to wear the little metal golden plate on his turban that says, holy unto the Lord, that doesn't make the priest holy. It means that the priest is set apart for a sacred service. He is holy to the Lord. He is set apart for working in the tabernacle. So when Paul here uses the word sanctified, he is using it in the sense of being set apart. Think of it this way. So what Paul says, do not divorce your unbelieving spouse because the unbelieving spouse is sanctified by being in this marriage. Think of it this way. When Jesus went up to a leper to touch him, to cleanse him, did Jesus become unclean by that? No. Now, if it was anybody else in the Old Testament context, if you were to touch something that was dead or unclean, you would be what? You would be unclean, right? So it's because it is Jesus. He does not become unclean. He makes the unclean thing clean through his touch. That's the idea here. The the unbelieving spouse is set apart. They're in the realm of the holy now. The the unbelieving spouse does not defile the believing spouse. Quite the opposite is true. The believing spouse sanctifies in the sense of you are now within the realm of God's blessing. Because if that unbelieving spouse agrees to stay with the believing spouse, that person now is within the sphere of God's blessing to his people. That unbelieving spouse is being exposed to the means of grace if they come to church with you. Right? If the unbelieving spouse comes to church, they are hearing each every week. They're hearing the gospel preached. They are seeing the means of grace practiced. The unbelieving spouse is exposed to how the Holy Spirit and the Word are working in and through the believing spouse. Keep your finger here and turn to 1 Peter. What's that? Yep. <laughs> you read my mind. <laughs> It's not even in my notes. I just, just this is a off script here. First Peter chapter three, and this is kind of you could see this. This is sort of like First Corinthians seven in action in a in a way. So First Peter chapter three. Um, Peter writes, wives likewise. So this is, you know, he's talking about submission. He starts with submitting to the uh, servants submit to masters, uh, people submit to the government. So he's going down the line. That's why he says likewise here. Wives likewise be submissive to your own husbands that even if some do not obey the word. There you go. So if, if a wife has an unbelieving husband, she is to be submissive to him because without a word, 
That unbelieving spouse may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. So there, that's the idea of what Paul is trying to get across here, and it applies to the unbelieving husband or to the believing husband with an unbelieving wife as well. The context there of the uh, the believing spouse sanctifying the unbelieving spouse, because as the Holy Spirit is working in and through the Word in that person's heart, the believing spouse's heart, they can win. You, know, you may win your spouse by your conduct, by the love that you show, by the submissiveness that you show. You can flip back to 1 Corinthians 7. That's why in verse 16, Paul can say, For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? This is not a promise. It's not a guarantee but, uh, that the unbelieving spouse will indeed come to saving faith. But it is saying that God, again, desires to do good to His people. God desires to redeem these relationships. And that uh, through your godly witness as a believing spouse, you may win your spouse. Keep praying. Continue to let the love of Christ flow through your life in practice. Now you may notice I skipped a verse, so let's go back to verse 15. But, but, If the unbelieving spouse does not want to stay in the marriage, Paul says, let him depart. Verse 15. If the unbeliever departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. The believing spouse is under no bondage if the unbelieving spouse abandons the marriage. God has called us to peace, and sometimes peace is means letting go. So in the case of abandonment, in the case in which an unbelieving spouse says, I'm tired of all your Jesus talk. I can't stand the fact that you read your Bible all the time. I can't stand the fact that you want to drag me to church all the time. I am out of here. And they leave. And they they just leave. And there's no attempt at any kind of reconciliation. The believing spouse is under no bondage in that situation. Now, before we finish this, um, it might be appropriate to note that Paul here, in this, in this passage that we're looking at, verses 10-16, through 16, does not talk about remarriage. See, the problem is when we look at this, because divorce is so rampant in our culture, we're looking at, is it okay to remarry? Paul's perspective here, Paul's emphasis here is not, is it okay to remarry? It's, don't divorce. That's, that's what Paul is getting at here. We look at it because of remarriage. Now, he does address remarriage in verse 39. We looked at it earlier, right? Verse 39, where if a spouse you know, loses their partner, that person is free to remarry, except you need to remarry in the Lord. But what about remarriage after divorce? This passage is silent on the topic. It would seem somewhat clear that if a divorce was done on unbiblical grounds, Right? If there was no adultery in the marriage, and if there was no abandonment in the marriage, those are the only two from this passage, the only two uh, biblical grounds for marriage. If a divorce was done for unbiblical grounds, then it would seem remarriage is out of the question. 
The biblical answer then would be to reconcile with your spouse or remain unmarried, as we saw in verse 11. However, it would seem safe to reason, as we reason from the Scriptures, that if there were biblical grounds for divorce, again, adultery or abandonment, then remarriage would be an option. Because it was the other partner in that marriage relationship that broke the covenant, right? If, 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 the unbelieving, if, if, if spouse commits adultery, you are permitted to divorce. It's not commanded. Again, remember, we, the idea is to try to keep the marriage together as much as you can. So it would seem that remarriage would be an option if the grounds for the divorce were biblical. Now, in the time that's left, I want to talk about abuse. Um, like I said, I don't, I don't think that what I've got here is going to cover the topic completely. Um, but I do want to briefly address the issue of abuse within a marriage because the reason, this is a thorny issue, and the reason is because we are awash as a society, right, that wants to sloganize, sloganize our way to virtue, right? You've got the hashtag Me Too movement. You've got the Believe All Women movement. you got, you know, there, and then there's sort of like this sort of, you get this extremes, right? You've got to believe all women. If they say there's, you know, if, there's, if they say there's abuse, you've got to believe them. And then the other extreme is, well, what about if they're lying? You know, it's like, do we just, you know, do we just convict a guy because... You know, a woman says so. You know, you got to have a try. You get, so you get this battle back and forth. Not all accusations of abuse are true, nor are all protestations of innocence true. So we got to avoid the extremes. Now, I do want to say, as your pastor and your elders, and I will never casually dismiss a case of abuse. Because it's hard enough if you're a woman, and this, let's just be honest, right? It's going to be mostly the women, right? You're never going to get a, you're rarely going to get a, a case of spousal abuse in which the husband is abused, All right? It's really, it's really going to be the women who are abused in this case. Let's, let's be honest. It's hard enough to muster the courage to come forth and talk about that. So we don't want to take the issue lightly. And also, as your spiritual leaders, your, myself and your elders, we want to provide a safe space, a safe place in order to hear you out. Now, the reason I bring this up, because in cases of abuse, some churches have not done a service to the cause of Christ. There's one church in particular that I'm thinking of, and I'm not going to name the name of the church. I'm not going to name the name of the pastor involved in the church. But if I were to name the name of the pastor, you would know. In which a woman brought charges of abuse by her husband, and the church, after interviewing this, forced, her hus- forced the wife to go back into this abusive relationship in which the husband was not only abusing her, but abusing the children. And because this man, the husband, was involved in the church, he was a teacher in the church, he did a lot of things in the church, he was known by a lot of people in the church, they said, well, he repented, you need to go back into the situation. Now, it's easy to fake repentance, Right? I'm sorry. You know, I promise I'll never do that again, right? You hear that all the time. And then you force the woman back in that situation that has not been resolved. So they, they, you know, they have forced women to reconcile with their abusers. This, this is a, that's an abomination. 
Let's just put that flat out there. Forcing a woman to go back and reconcile with her abuser is an abomination. Should not be done. If there's a case of abuse, you need to remove the victim from the abusing situation and the children if there are children involved. You've got to remove them out of the abusive situation. Second, if the abuse is physical and ongoing and serious, you need to involve the local authorities. That's what this church also didn't do. They did not involve the local authorities. The woman had to do that herself. And it turned out that the man was arrested because of this. Now the church looks bad. <laughs> right? You've got to involve the local authorities. Now if the local authorities are not needed then the pastor and elders need to step in and deal with the husband. This is, a, this is a church discipline issue then. If it's not going to involve the local authorities, the pastors and elders need to treat this as a discipline issue and treat the husband as someone who needs to repent in this case. This is difficult because, again, it's easy to feign repentance and remorse and then you kind of put an abuser back in a situation where he is with his victims. The bottom line is the safety and protection of the wife and children must be paramount. The church needs to protect the, weak, the weakest among us, the children. Right? We, are to, we are to protect the widows, the orphans, and the, the strangers, and so on and so forth. Now again, God can and often does redeem these situations, even these abusive situations. But it will take time. You can't hurry this. It'll take a lot of blood, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears. Hopefully not literal blood. Okay. Now, if the husband refuses to repent, what is the church to do? You enact discipline, right? If the husband is, is, is if, the, you know, if the leaders of the church are encouraging and exhorting the husband to repent of the situation and he refuses to repent, eventually that means excommunication. The man is now out of the church. The man is now treated as, as in Matthew 18, what is, when someone is excommunicated from the church, how do you treat them? As a sinner and a tax collector, right? In other words, you treat them as an unbeliever. As an unbeliever. If he is excommunicated, then it may be appropriate to treat him as an unbelieving spouse who then has abandoned his marriage and his marriage vows. In which case, then, divorce would be permissible in that case to divorce in an abusive situation like that. Now, I'm just scratching the surface here. And I, you could probably tell just by the look on my face, it's a very difficult topic for me to, to address. Uh, I, again, um, we need to do better as a church. Not our church in particular. I'm talking about the church in general. We need to do better. We need to do better in this situation. Because somebody will look at verse 11 of chapter 7 in, in, if you're looking at a context of abuse and say, well, sorry, you're not allowed to divorce. You have to remain unmarried or reconcile your husband. It's like, that, that's wrong. You've got to deal with the abuse. And sometimes the abuse requires hard work. So, that's all I have. Anyway, on a more chipper note, next week... We'll be looking at uh, we'll look at verses 17 through 24. And this really those that passage there, 17 through 24, sort of because it's in the middle of the chapter, kind of provides the the, the principle that governs most of the chapter. <laughs>